We are currently in a journey through the Gospel of Luke. Luke, and that's where we continue today. I don't have any creative introductions. If you got your Bible, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's the Christmas story. That's where we are today, the Christmas story, which is why we're singing some Christmas songs. But maybe you'll notice something about the Christmas story today you've never seen before. That's my hope. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, you can follow along. Uh, Luke 2, we'll pick up with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, son, her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. We're going to stop there at this point. Make a, just, let's make some observations here. Now, you and I probably know this Christmas story pretty well. I imagine you have heard it year after year after year. You might be able to rehearse it in your sleep. But this story is told in isolation. This story is set within the context of the Roman world. And Luke sets this story up as a story of contrasts. The story about Jesus starts with Augustus. That's how he launches the story of his birth. He mentions Augustus Caesar. See, this is a story about salvation coming in the world. But in the Roman world, salvation was coming through political power, military dominance. That's how you get salvation. And Augustus Caesar, the first formal Roman emperor, was the one who brought that into the Roman world. And he was celebrated for it. And so as Luke tells the story of the birth of Christ, he sets it up by mentioning Augustus Caesar, the most powerful person in the Roman world at that time. Now I want you to see something about Augustus maybe you didn't, you weren't aware of. Uh, about a hundred years ago, there were two tablets that were found in what is modern Turkey. Here are the two tablets. Uh, we can't read that. Here's the translation off of the stone. I want you to see this. Since providence, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a Savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might in war and arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world, that he came by reason of him which Asia resolved in Smyrna. It's just one that has been found, a declaration of the birthday of Augustus Caesar. It is the day that the Roman world would celebrate as the day the good news came into the world, a Savior has arrived. Luke knows that. 
Luke knows this is the story of Augustus. This is the good news in the Roman world that political power, military dominance has brought salvation into the world. And that is good news for the Roman Empire. It has come by way of Caesar. Augustus Caesar, Savior of the world. That's the announcement. That's the celebration year after year. And so when Luke, decades later, decides to pen an account of Christ by inspiration as he writes this part of the story, he steps it up in contrast. Oh, we'll start with what many think is the good news. But we will tell you what is really good news. Right here in this passage, the contrast between military power, political dominance, and a baby wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger because there was no room for him. Luke knows there's another story in play in the Roman world. And you know Mary actually sang about it. You remember that Gabriel came to Mary, declared, you're going to have a son. He's going to be, he's going to be the Savior. He's Messiah. And you remember that Mary like just broke out in song eventually at this announcement. And in that song, she said this. Verse 51, 52 of chapter 1, Luke 1. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Mary herself sings, sings about this other story, that God works in the opposite direction. The world says it's power, it's dominance, it's influence, it's likes and hearts and shares. It's just fame. But God says, I'm working through humility. I'm actually going to work through the lowest of the low. I'm going to work that way and through that I will topple every ruler and raise up the one. It's going to come through humility. So what we see here, right out of the gate in this birth story, is that the way of salvation is coming through humility, not power, as we might think of it. It's not coming through political dominance. It's not coming through military might. It's going to come through humility. And what the birth story does is it sets in motion the rest of the narrative. And what it will do, what Luke's doing here, is he sets it up to point us to where the story will end. The story starts in humility and rejection. Doesn't even have a guest room. This story of humility and rejection is going to go all the way to the cross. Where we will find the fullness of salvation. So this birth story, this birth story points us to where the story is going. It's going to the cross. And so this, this very short telling of the birth of God the Son actually is pointing to the fuller story of the Gospel. No surprise, New Testament writers look back and interpret all that has happened in the life of Christ. They're going to push in on that one big theme. It is His humility, His rejection. The giving up of His life that actually brought life to everyone else. Let me say it this way. To set us, set us up for these next set of scriptures. When the New Testament writers talk about Christ and His glory, they don't write about His military campaigns. They don't write about His political power. 
like a person would if you were writing about Augustus Caesar. Instead, they write about Christ's humility, which we first see right here in the story of his birth. So check this out. I just want to string some scriptures together. I want you to see it. Sometimes I do this. I want to string the scriptures together so you kind of kind of feel the weight of them just consecutively. Boom, boom, boom. I want you to see here this theme woven into how they tell the gospel story. Check this out. We'll go Hebrews 2, verse 14. We're going to do three writers, three inspired writers in the New Testament here. Here's the Hebrew writer. Since the children have flesh and blood, that would be me and you, he, that is Christ, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And then 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds, we have been healed. Every time the New Testament writers are looking at Jesus and they're reflecting on His glory, And all the light coming from his life, they're looking in, not at a political political power or some military campaign. They're not looking at how he just wiped people out. They're looking in at his humility, how he was obedient, obedient to death. So when we look at the glory of Christ, we don't do it with the eyes of the world where you look and say, man, look at all of that success. Look at all the people they influence. Look at all the wealth. You look in on Christ and you say, look at that humility. Look at that love. And it's there in His humility. It's there in His birth, wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger. All that leading to a Roman cross where He'll be crucified. We look in on that and that's where we see the glory. It's the complete opposite of what we'd be looking for. The Roman world was not writing on tablets of stone in in the centers of city squares about the humility, the rejection, the lowliness of their Caesars. They were writing about their campaigns and their dominance and their success. God works from a different direction. It It is at the birth, at the cross, where we see His glory. So no surprise that in the next section of the passage, you know what theme's going to run through this next section? It's going to be all about God's glory. It's not what you'd expect from the world's perspective. You don't expect glory. You don't expect talking about glory and honor when looking at a baby wrapped in cloth, laid in a manger because there's nowhere else for them to be born. But God's working from a different direction. Here's the next section in the passage. I'm sure you know it well, but man, there's some insight here. There's some insight here that's going to take us all the way to the Atlanta Braves. You think I'm joking? You just wait. You, I know. I know. I know. Here we go. Now all you're going to be paying attention to is, okay, can we get to the Braves? Can we get to the Braves? <laughs> just trying to keep you engaged. Now forget about that. Let's go here. I promise you we'll get there. Chapter 2, verse 8, And when 
And there, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. Lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared. And with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the, angels, uh, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a a manger. If you're keeping track, that's the third time that's been mentioned. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, and they were just as they had been told. There's so much right there. But right out of the gate, you can see, well, now there's good news being declared here, but this is not the good news of the world. This is not the good news that the Roman world was spreading about who they perceived as Savior, Augustus Caesar. No, this is good news, not about a a political influencer or a military commander. This is good news about a baby laid in a manger. But it's right there that God's glory is on display. Actually, it's in the manger. It's in the manger where this baby boy has been born that we have not just any baby boy. We have this. I just want to remind us, let's highlight all the things that the angel said to them. This is the good news. A Savior, Messiah, Lord. This is one who will come to save. He is anointed and He is Lord. He is sovereign. There He is, wrapped in cloths in a manger. This is the one who will bring salvation to His people. Man, not what you'd expect. And yet it's all right here. And here's the thing about this message. This is an insight I, have never, I, I had never seen until preparing for this message. This, the reason these shepherds go and glorify God and go tell others of what has happened is because they were told that this is who this was. By default, the shepherds weren't looking for Savior, Messiah, and Lord in a manger. That's not where they expected to find that one. They expected to find that person in the halls of Congress or in the halls of the buildings in Rome. Major influence, uh, major centers of power. That's where they thought they'd find that. Not a baby in a manger, but that's exactly where they find this baby. And they, they, they go out and they, they speak because they've been told. I want to make mention, so there are so many places in this passage where over and over again, they were told, they heard, they went and told what they had been told. So much of this is about what the 
shepherd's herd. Just one place, so it's highlight just one section of the passage. They go out and they go and they tell things that have happened which the Lord has told them about. Now here is such a key insight we cannot walk away from. You see, a lot had happened. A lot had happened in the story. There's a lot going on. But the only reason the shepherds see it and give glory back to God for it is because they were told what had happened. They were told who this baby was. Revelation came from the outside into their minds and that completely changed the game. But they had to have a message from the outside. They weren't coming to this on their own. Here's what one commentator says. It's so good. I'm going to read it all to you. This shows the fact that they heard. This shows how much we need the preaching of the gospel. To understand what God had has done, we need to have someone explain it to us. By itself, what God had done could not save the shepherds or anyone else. They needed to know what it meant by faith. Which only could happen by divine revelation. This is how God saves us. Not simply by sending Jesus to be our Savior, but also by preaching us the gospel so that we can believe in His saving work. Now, this next, this next part was so good. And you know I like the way words are put together. This right here, just, it just rings. It just sings. That's what I meant. Sings. God doesn't just do things. He also says things. And we need to know what He says so that we can believe what He has done. That's so good. God came in and did something. But the way that becomes active in your life and mine, the way it became active in the shepherd's life, is that message came to them. And they go about telling people what has happened not just what has happened, but what they have been told had happened. We desperately need God's Word to come to us from outside ourselves. We must never trust our inner voice. Do not trust your inner voice. Do not trust yourself completely. You trust God's Word. You trust the Word that gives you a true picture of what is reality. And the shepherds would have never known all of this is happening. They would have never seen it clearly without this revelation from the outside. And the only way you and I know what's going on in our heart is we need God to interpret our heart. Left to ourselves, we're in a very bad place. You don't want me trusting me all the time. That just gets me in trouble. Here's the thing about God's Word. It comes from the outside and it transforms us. Paul says something like this. It's, one of his, it's a classic passage out of the book of Romans. Check this out. Romans 10, 13-17. He writes this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what you need. That's what you need for salvation. You need to call on the name of the Lord. Well, now he's going to work that logic. Here it is. So how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You just see, the, you just see this logic just play right out. You need someone bringing the Word. 
And then this. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. There are a million memes out there about just have faith. Have more faith. Get faith. I'm going to have faith. I just want faith. Life's going bad. Have faith. Just have faith. I can just keep saying it. Have faith. Have faith. faith. I mean, faith is all over the place. From Oprah to The View to churches. We're all talking about faith. What the Bible says is very clear here. If you want true faith, saving faith, it comes by God's Word. You don't manufacture this. You just don't try real hard and then you just have more faith. No, if you want faith, you need God's Word. That's what you need to grow faith. It just doesn't appear. The Word must be sown into the heart and mind and there then faith grows. So if you ever get to a point where you go, why do I lack faith? Just go ahead and take an inventory of how much Bible you put in your mind. And there may be a correlation. But all this brings me to this. My heart, and maybe even more so my ears, they are attuned not to the song of the Scriptures. My heart, and really my ears, they are they default. They're attuned to hearing the song of Augustus. I, by default, hear the songs of praise for Augustus Caesar. By default, I look and see glory where there's power and dominance and success and influence and wealth. Like, by default, I hear those songs because that's where I think success is. It is the Gospel and the Gospel of Christ alone that teaches me the way of salvation is not through wealth and power and dominance. It's through a Roman cross where my cosmic rebellion was paid for. I'm not going to learn that from anywhere else but the Gospel of Christ. And so every day that I'm hearing the songs of the world... Desperately need to be training my ear to hear the gospel. I need to remember it is the way of the cross. It is Jesus, not me, that brings salvation. I don't trust me. I trust his word. Like, I need that day in and day out because by default, I trust me. I think I'm always right. You know why I have so many fights in my home? Because I'm always right. That's why we have so many fights in my home. Because I'm right. And I usually am, but I'm just, you get the point. Tess is not amused. Um, so, um, who's taking me to lunch? Who's taking me to lunch? All right. Here's the application. Let me drive that to where I think the application is. I desperately need to retell myself the gospel every day, and I need to hear it proclaimed every week. Because if I don't, I'm going to be turning back in on myself. And I'm going to begin hearing the world song. I'm going to be listening for Augustus when really true life comes through Christ. The, the, this little boy, born, wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger, went to a cross. That's where life is. Man, I need that gospel because it tells me I'm not nearly as good as I think I am. I need that. I need that message in front of me day in and day out. Now the Atlanta Braves. 
And we're not going to talk about what happened this weekend. But I have some conviction because I prepared this sermon and this clip and this quote before yesterday. And I just wonder if I jinxed the whole thing. I did. I did. But even if they're not going to the World Series, they're being used in a gospel message. And that beats any team that wins the World Series. So in reality, they win. Just in case you're wondering what all this means. All right. So let's not, we don't want to talk about it. Let's not talk about anything else related to yesterday. Um, recently, I read an article, uh, Ron Washington, third base and infield coach. And how Washington has trained those infielders to be the best infielders in the game. And in that article, there's this, there's this um, section that describes what he does. And I thought, my, that relates to this one-to-one. I mean, it's a direct application on top of this. Here's what the article says. The infield drills that Ron Washington does with the infielders takes only four minutes. Any longer, Washington says, would be too long. Five minutes is a commitment, but four minutes is something anyone can give. For the first two minutes, Washington tosses ground balls to the fielder. And for the last two, he gets out his fungo bat. These are some of the most basic drills an infielder can do. But therein lies the magic. They are deliberately boring, Washington says. He believes in the importance of doing boring work every day. Because if an infielder never skips that kind of work, he never ends up in a position where he really needs it. A player never has to go back to basics if he already hits the basics every day. Now for fun, I just want to show you what this looks like. He's still going to attack the ball out, out there because what we're trying to do, get on this one. See how the eyes, the glove, and the ball's line? Mm-hmm. Get on this one. See how the eyes, the glove, and the ball is lined? Get on this one. The eyes, the ball, and the glove is lined. That's the whole purpose is to line everything up. One, two, three, four, five. We do ten. So that was the ones in the middle. Now we go to the glove side. Now what are you looking for here? Just lining it up. Same thing, catching the ball in his hand. Just lining it up, meeting the ball, bringing it to me. Backhand, same thing. See how his hands work? Ozzy, have you ever done a drill similar to this, or is this all? Never before till I met Ron Washington. Now we go to it, him getting it off the fungo. Just little pops. Nothing, nothing too serious, just little pops. Get him to use his hands the way he used it when I was throwing it out my hand. You see what I'm saying? Get, get that muscle memory going. Yeah. yeah, see? We go five. One hop. One. Two. Three. Four. Right. Two. Three. Four. And then I drop this one on. Side hands. Outside. That's all he can do. He can't do anything. The ball just gets good. Boop. And he just gets it. Instead of running and falling down, I'm teaching him that they can use the hand. Backhand. Same thing. He's in position. Smash your backhand at him. There you go. He's in position. They smash your backhand at him. He's in position. They smash your backhand at him. He's still going to attack the ball all right. out there. We'll, we'll go to the next slide. Or oh, just See don't do the next slide. No, no, no. Go back. Go back one. You, can, you hit pause. You hit pause on that video. There we go. We'll just leave it there. 
that's what you and I need to be doing as Christians every day. We need to be doing infield drills. Constantly reminding ourselves at how bad we really are and how good He really is. We need to constantly, every day, just doing infield drills. I know that the glory of Christ comes through humility. The world's going to show you images of Augustus Caesar every day. And they're going to tell you to trust yourself to do what you want because you're worth it. You do you. Whatever you feel, that's the world's constantly going to be telling that to you. It's going to be giving praise to dominance and power and influence and likes and hearts and shares. Like, that's the message of Augustus. You're going to hear it every day. But every day, as Christians, we keep telling ourselves the Gospel. We keep putting our minds back into the manger. We keep taking our eyes back to the cross. We keep worrying in the resurrection where He was vindicated for our salvation. We keep going back to Jesus. Every day, you take infield drills. Every day. So here are some that I think relate. Just a few. These are just a few of what we might call infield drills for Christians. I know for me, if I'm going to grow in faith, I need Christians as my closest relationships. I'm just, listen, I like a lot of non-Christians. And I get to be around some of them. But they've got to be real careful they're not my closest friends. Because who you are closest with will always rub off on you. I need Christians as my core. And then I need God's Word daily. I need it. Because I'm going to get a lot of other words otherwise. And I need church attendance weekly. I do. There's no substitute for this. There just isn't. And you know, we've talked about this many times. I'm not saying if you have a job or you're out of town. I get all that. But in general, you can't substitute for being here week in and week out. It's an infield drill. Thinking that you can grow in faith without any of these is like thinking that Ozzy Albies, the, the player in the, in, the, um, in the video, thinking that he can practice diving catches from here on out because he learned the basics and never again will he do a basic drill and he'll be okay. No, no he won't because the day's coming where he's going to try to do a diving catch on a regular grounder and it's not going to work. I need these. These are my infield drills. And when you don't have them, you will default to Augustus Caesar. You will default to the world. All right, so here's a next step. Like something you and I can do, like just on the ground this week, but you're going to have to be a little creative. Some of this is on you to figure out. Pick an infield drill to keep the gospel in front of your mind and heart and do it regularly. Okay, and then note, I don't always have a footnote, but this one I do. If you don't do this, if I don't do this, our hearts will drift towards Augustus. That is, it will drift to the world and we will miss the glory of the gospel of Christ, his humility and his obedience for us. You'll miss it. You'll miss the wonder and the awe of his glory. I don't know what your infield drill is. Some of you, you, you might do sticky notes and put them in different places in your house. Just uh, this afternoon, I'm about to do a funeral. Uh, it's a lady who was at First Christian for many years, moved to Greensboro, but being buried here. The daughter told me one of the things they found throughout their mom's home later in life were sticky notes throughout the house, on the refrigerator, the mirror. And they were scriptures so that their mom could remember the scriptures daily because memory was going. But she made sure to keep those things in front of her eyes. 
That was her infield drill. Every day she did this basic infield drill. And she may not even rem- she may not have remembered it an hour later. But when she walked in front of that refrigerator, she sure did. I don't know what your infield drill is. But we better do our infield drills. If we do not, Augustus Caesar will grow much larger in our hearts than it ever should be. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and thanks for the glory that is revealed in your humility. Would you, by your word, the hearing and the reading of your word, would you just show us more of your glory and would you help it work into our lives so that we are people that are defined by Christ? That we would be people that are overflowing with fruit like patience and joy and just being kind. We would be a people who don't trust ourselves more than we would trust your word. That our feelings would always be checked by your revelation. Would you help us? We desperately need help. Thank you that you came into the world. This is good news. That a baby, God the Son, wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger. Savior, Messiah, Lord. Therein is your glory. So we pray this in his name, asking for this transformation. Your help as we do our drills day in and day out. And together we say, Amen.